and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you for listening. In 1798, an ambitious young French general named Napoleon Bonaparte embarked on an epic adventure to the Middle East. There, he sought to spread the ideals of the French Revolution and carve from the Ottoman Empire a new Oriental Empire in his own image. And while he was ultimately thwarted in this effort, the French expedition to Egypt changed the world forever. In the first of this series of episodes on the French expedition to Egypt, we will first be going over some crucial background information on the geopolitical and personal circumstances that led directly to Napoleon's fateful decision to invade Egypt, as well as some background information on the history of the region itself. Without further ado, let's get into the narrative. The year was 1798. It had been nine years since the beginning of the French Revolution. The reign of terror ushered in by the Jacobins had ended four years ago, and a more moderate government, known as the Directory, had come to power. Even though the most radical period of the revolution was over, all of Europe was still reeling from its aftershocks. Six years of constant warfare on the European continent had only very recently come to an end, as the monarchies of Europe made their peace with the French Republic. Now, not only were the French able to defend their revolution from the threat of invasion, but France was also able to annex a great deal of territory, and establish a number of sister republics, which were effectively puppet governments that took their cues from Paris. One major thorn remained in the side of the French Republic, however, the Kingdom of Great Britain. The treaties which had ended the War of the First Coalition had not been signed by Britain, and so the two countries remained in a state of war. Initially, French decision-makers reasoned that the best place to strike the British was Ireland, given its close proximity to Britain itself and the unpopularity of British rule there. Representatives of the Directory made contact with the Society of the United Irishmen, an Irish Republican revolutionary organization. The United Irishmen planned to stage an insurrection in 1796, and the French agreed to send a military expedition to Ireland to assist them. The French fleet departed for Ireland in mid-December 1796, but encountered bad weather off the coast of the island. A third of the fleet was lost, and the operation was aborted. The United Irishmen rescheduled their rebellion for 1798, and they once again entreated the French Republic to intervene on their behalf. The Directory tentatively agreed to their proposal, and agreed to place General Napoleon Bonaparte, a politically connected rising star in the French military, at the head of an army which was to carry out the operation. In February 1798, Napoleon traveled to the northern port town of Boulogne-sur-Mer to review his forces. He reported back to the Directory that he believed the French Navy to be incapable of carrying out such an invasion, and he recommended that the plan be abandoned. Instead, he suggested that resources be diverted towards an invasion of Egypt. The reasons for this decision defy simple explanation, but I will nonetheless give it an attempt. Napoleon outlined for the Directory a comprehensive rationale behind a potential invasion of Egypt. Firstly, the strategic location of Egypt between the Mediterranean and Red Seas meant that if the French were to seize the country, they could cut off British trade with India, the most lucrative colony in its empire. Once the French had established military control over Egypt, they could then use it as a base from which to launch a further military expedition towards India, to assist the ruler of Mysore, Tipu Sultan, in his rebellion against the British. Even with all that in mind, this still seems a pretty flimsy pretext for such a grand undertaking. Napoleon estimated the cost of the expedition to be between 8 and 9 million francs, and he would need 30,000 soldiers and hundreds of ships to transport them. As such, the Directory was initially reluctant to sign off on Napoleon's scheme, 
especially considering other strategic objectives with more readily apparent purposes. However, the Directory was much more amenable to Napoleon's plan than they let on initially, especially given the intellectual environment at the time. First, allow me to further set the stage with a little crash course on early modern Egyptian history. Since 1250, Egypt had been ruled by the Mamluks. The word Mamluk is an Arabic term roughly translating as slave or one who is owned. As the name implies, the Mamluks were slave soldiers, purchased at a young age from far afield, typically from the Caucasus region. While this practice may have originated earlier, it was very widely used by the Ayyubid dynasty of Egypt, which imported these slave soldiers extensively. Due to their training and background, the Mamluks were widely renowned for their martial prowess. In fact, the Mamluks hold the distinction of being the first group to defeat the forces of the Mongol Empire in open battle at the Battle of Ain Jalut in 1260. Despite the fact that the Mamluks were also thought to be more loyal than normal soldiers, they were, over the years, able to accrue a great deal of power at the Ayyubid court. During the Seventh Crusade in the mid-13th century, which was coincidentally also a French-led effort, the Mamluks took advantage of the political instability to depose the ruling Ayyubid dynasty and establish themselves at the head of a new regime. Paradoxical as the notion of a state run by slave soldiers may seem, the period of Mamluk rule in Egypt was relatively stable and prosperous, and lasted for over 200 years, only ending with their defeat in 1517 at the hands of the new up-and-coming power in the region, the Ottoman Empire. While Egypt was nominally under the control of the Ottoman Empire, the Mamluk Beys, or governors, remained the real authorities in the region. Twenty-four in number, they formed a powerful ruling class that rendered the Ottoman-appointed provincial governor effectively powerless. Two of the Mamluk Beys in particular, the Amir al-Hajj, or commander of the pilgrimage, and the Sheikh al-Balad, chief of the city, city referring to Cairo in this instance, were the two most powerful men in all of Egypt, with the former the head of the military, and the latter the chief administrator. Unhappy as the sublime port, read the Ottoman central government, may have been with this arrangement, so long as the tribute payments kept coming in and the Mamluk Beys continued to swear fealty to whoever happened to be the Ottoman Sultan at the time, the Mamluks were effectively allowed to continue governing the country, and continue importing slave soldiers from the Caucasus to further bolster their ranks. In spite of the long-standing Franco-Ottoman alliance, Egypt had been the object of French desire since the mid-18th century. This was mostly thanks to the work of two men, the Baron de Tot and the Comte de Volney. Both of these men had traveled to Egypt and the Levant, and wrote extensively on their findings. Their accounts sparked public interest and fascination with the elusive Orient. Napoleon himself read Volney's Travels in Egypt and Syria, and was quite taken by it. He is even said to have brought a copy of the text along with him to Egypt. These works were so influential that they were read by French diplomats and other statesmen. As early as 1774, the so-called Eastern Question had begun to vex the diplomatic core of Europe. With Ottoman power waning, the prospect of rival powers gaining wealth and territory at the expense of the Ottoman Empire was a real fear among French diplomats. Specifically, they were worried about their arch-rival Britain, whose merchants had already established a presence at Ottoman ports in Egypt. A potential French seizure of Egypt would not be motivated by pure realpolitik, however. Its strategic location at the crossroads of world trade, as well as a climate well-suited for the cultivation of cash crops, meant that Egypt would be able to provide the French government with a lucrative revenue stream. 
One of the men in the French government advocating most vocally for the annexation of Egypt was Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord. Talleyrand was a former bishop and an accomplished diplomat, who became the French Minister of Foreign Affairs in 1797. During the Italian campaign of the War of the First Coalition, Talleyrand saw in Napoleon Bonaparte the potential for greatness, and he sought to ally himself with the young general. The two established a strong professional relationship during this time, and it was thanks to Talleyrand's support that Napoleon was able to get approval from the Directory for his Egyptian expedition. Of course, Napoleon had personal reasons for this undertaking as well. Napoleon had spent his adolescence at the military academy of Brienne-le-Chateau. The study of history formed a significant portion of his education. Napoleon intently studied the biographies of the great martial leaders of antiquity, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, both of whom were famous for their conquests in the Orient. The term Orient is archaic, and the definition varies widely depending on who you ask and in what context you're asking, but in this case, the Orient mainly referred to what we now call the Middle East. So if you hear me using this term in the future, just know that that is what I'm referring to. According to historian Edward Said and his book Orientalism, to Napoleon and his contemporaries, the Orient existed as a, quote, set of values attached not to its modern realities, but to a series of valorized contacts it had with a distant European past, end quote. Thus, it must have seemed to the young, impressionable, and ever-ambitious Napoleon that a military conquest in the elusive Orient would bring him just the fame and glory he so desired. It is possible that Napoleon was laying plans for the expedition as early as 1789, when he first read Volney's Travels in Egypt and Syria. On the eve of the expedition, Napoleon Bonaparte was already one of the most skilled and famous military officers in the French Republic. He first rose to prominence in 1793, during the Siege of Toulon, when he led an attack that broke the British blockade of that city. In 1795, he had saved the Republic by quelling a royalist uprising in Paris. After that, he led the armies of the Republic into Italy, and handily defeated the Austrians and their allies. It is mostly thanks to Napoleon's efforts during the Italian campaign that Austria was forced to sign the Treaty of Campo Formio, which ended the War of the First Coalition. It took quite a bit of convincing from both Napoleon and Talleyrand for the Directory to approve the Egyptian expedition, but they were very persistent, and by April 1798, Napoleon had been given the go-ahead, but with a few conditions. Firstly, Napoleon could only take 25,000 of the 30,000 soldiers that he requested. For context, 37,000 soldiers had gone with Napoleon on his Italian campaign, and at this time, the Ottoman military numbered upwards of 200,000. Furthermore, the Directory would not provide Napoleon with any material assistance. He was to foot the bill of the campaign himself. The Directory, wary of Napoleon's ambitions, issued him very explicit orders. He was only supposed to expel the Mamluks from Egypt, nothing more. So as to avoid large-scale Ottoman intervention in the conflict, Talleyrand was to be dispatched to Constantinople on a diplomatic mission. Once Egypt was secured, discussion as to the fate of the country was to be tabled for a later date. Seeing how little time and resources the Directory were willing to devote to this expedition, it seems to appear that the Directory was hoping for the whole affair to end in disaster, and, in doing so, Napoleon's burgeoning political career would go down in flames as well. As it would turn out, the first half of that prediction would prove true, but not the second. And so it was that on the 19th of May, 1798, 
the fleet of 335 ships set sail from five different ports throughout southern France and northern Italy. Aboard these ships were the 25,000 men of the Army of the Orient. The Army of the Orient was divided into eight divisions, headed by Generals Tessay, Rainier, Clebert, Manu, Bonne, Dumas, Domartin, and Caffarelli. Now we hardly have the time to give a full biography of each of these men, but I will briefly give a description of those generals who are most relevant to our narrative. General Jean-Baptiste Clebert was born in the French city of Strasbourg, and he served in the Austrian army before defecting to France. He earned recognition for his assistance in suppressing the Royalist revolt in the Vendée region, and for his service during the Rhine campaign of the War of the First Coalition. The 44-year-old Clebert harbored a personal dislike of Napoleon, whom he considered to be overly ambitious. But he was certainly a capable general, some would argue more so than Napoleon himself, and the two were able to put aside their differences and maintain a cordial working relationship. Louis de Say was also said to have had a tactical ability on par with Napoleon's. When the revolution broke out, he was a 21-year-old low-ranking officer who chose to remain in the Republican military despite his noble background. He quickly rose through the ranks during the War of the First Coalition earning nationwide fame when he held the strategically significant fortress of Kell against superior Austrian forces for two whole months. Thomas Alexandre Dumas was born in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, to a French aristocrat and a woman who was his slave. As an adolescent, he accompanied his father to the mainland, where he was able to secure a position in the French military. Dumas quickly distinguished himself as a brilliant cavalry officer, he served under Napoleon in Italy, where he gained a fearsome reputation. If his name sounds familiar to you, it is probably because this Dumas was the father of Alexandre Dumas, the celebrated author of The Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo. Also accompanying Napoleon on this adventure were his chief of staff, Louis-Alexandre Berthier, and his many aides-de-camp, among whom were his younger brother, Louis Bonaparte, his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, and Joseph Sokolowski, a Polish nobleman and close personal friend. Also in his entourage was his personal secretary, Louis-Antoine Favillet de Bourrienne. The two were friends and classmates in military school, but after graduating, Bourrienne decided to pursue a career in the diplomatic corps instead. The two friends crossed paths once again in 1795, after Napoleon successfully put down a nascent royalist uprising in Paris. From then on, Bourrienne accompanied Napoleon nearly everywhere he went, keeping meticulous notes and saving pertinent documents that he would, later, eventually publish in 1830 as the Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, a work that I have used as a source to write this series. Finally, there were the 167 scientists, engineers, artists, linguists, archaeologists, and so on that Napoleon had dubbed the Savants. Officially known as the Commission of the Arts and Sciences, the Savants aimed to accomplish two goals. The first was to bring with them to Egypt the sum of French artistic and scientific accomplishment, with the aim of establishing an institute there that was to become a major hub of French intellectual activity. While they were working towards this end, they were also to catalogue all their discoveries, which were to later be published in Europe under the title Description of Egypt. According to Edward Said, their purpose was to, quote, "...restore a region from its present barbarism to its former classical greatness." to instruct, for its own benefit, the Orient in the ways of the modern West, to institute new areas of specialization, to establish new disciplines, to divide, deploy, schematize, tabulate, index, and record everything in sight and out of sight, to make out of every observable detail a generalization, 
and out of every generalization, an immutable law about the oriental nature, temperament, mentality, custom, or type, and, above all, to transmute living reality into the stuff of texts. End quote. Indeed, Napoleon's ambitions for this campaign were rather lofty. Historian J. Christopher Harold writes, quote, One cannot help marveling at this mixture of grand Faustian visions and utter poppycock. End quote. The French fleet had one stop to make in the Mediterranean before heading on to Egypt, Malta. Malta is a tiny island, no larger than 122 square miles, located south of Sicily. But, small as it may be, its location in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea made the island very strategically significant. For the past 268 years, Malta had been ruled by the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, known more briefly as the Knights Hospitalier. Their origins go back even further than that, however. The order was originally founded and headquartered at the eponymous hospital of St. John in Jerusalem, with the mission of caring for sick and injured Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land. It became a military organization during the First Crusade, but as Muslim forces retook the Holy Land over the next two centuries, the knights were forced to relocate, first to Cyprus, then to Rhodes, and finally to Malta. In 1565, the knights had been the pride of all of Christendom, when they successfully defended their tiny island stronghold from a three-month siege by the Ottoman Turks, who outnumbered them six to one. But the geopolitical stage had changed quite a bit since the Great Siege of Malta. The Ottoman threat waned, and the Christians of Europe took to fighting amongst themselves rather than to fighting the heretics. By the time the French Revolution broke out, the crusading spirit had long since vanished. The rulers of Europe no longer found it necessary to prop up the order as they once had. The once proud knights now resorted to piracy to get their income, capturing Muslim ships, seizing their cargo, and ransoming off their crew. Membership dwindled considerably. According to Napoleon's spies, the order had only 357 knights, most of whom were too old to fight. Additionally, most of these knights were of French origin, and there were doubts that they would be willing to take up arms against their own countrymen. Napoleon himself was quite certain of victory, writing, quote, Malta certainly possessed physical means of resistance, but no moral means. The capture of Malta was assured before we even left Toulon, end quote. Nineteen days after setting sail, the fleet arrived at Malta. Napoleon's plan was to encircle the fortress city of Valletta and intimidate the knights into surrendering. An awestruck Maltese witness attested, quote, Never had Malta seen such a numberless fleet in her waters, end quote. Napoleon sent one of his aides to camp ashore to request the Grand Master of the Knights, a 54-year-old Prussian named Ferdinand von Hompesch zu Bolheim, permission to anchor his fleet off the coast of the island. Hompesch saw right through the ruse and refused. The next day, Napoleon sent another envoy to the Grand Master, this time with an ultimatum effectively demanding his surrender. No response came, so Napoleon ordered his men to go ashore and secure the island. Within 24 hours, almost the entire island was under their control, save for the capital city of Valletta. A tense standoff ensued, while Grandmaster Hompesh summoned his war council to discuss a course of action. They quickly reached the conclusion that, given their dwindling numbers, outdated defenses, and lack of local support, their defeat was inevitable. On the 11th of July, 1798, Grandmaster Hompesh went aboard Napoleon's flagship, the Orient, and requested an armistice. A treaty was signed the following day. The knights ceded sovereignty over Malta to the French. In exchange, Grandmaster Ampesh was promised a principality somewhere in Germany and a pension of 500,000 francs. The other knights would receive a pension around 701,000 francs. 
And with that, the 268 years of the knight's rule on Malta had come to an end. The ever-ambitious Napoleon was not simply content to leave it at that. His little Maltese sidetrack had two purposes. Yes, he had to secure the island for strategic reasons, but he also felt compelled to export the ideals of the revolution to it. Throughout the next week, Napoleon dictated no less than 168 orders, dispatches, and reports, with the aim of replacing the centuries-old monastic order with a new modern republican government along French lines. In the place of the old order, a commission of 11 men was formed. Nine of these men would be native Maltese, but the two highest positions, military governor and commissioner, were held by Frenchmen, and these men were made to answer directly to Napoleon. Freedom of speech, of the press, and of religion were all granted to the Maltese. The Muslim sailors that had been held by the knights for ransom were to be freed, and the education system was overhauled. New schools were to be established that would impart to the children the values of the French Revolution. Sixty of the most gifted Maltese children were given scholarships to study in France, much like Napoleon himself had done as a child. Nobility was abolished, and any knights refusing to relinquish their titles were given three days to vacate the island. Around 50 knights, all of French origin, made the decision to serve under Napoleon. Some did so in a military capacity, others did so in an administrative capacity. The vast majority of knights, however, went into exile. Many of them went to St. Petersburg, Russia, at the behest of Tsar Paul I, who had become Grand Master of the Order after Hompesh abdicated. The knights were allowed to take with them into exile their sacred relics, a splinter of the true cross on which Jesus was said to have been crucified, and the preserved right hand of St. John the Baptist. The rest of their assets, valued at some 7 million francs, were expropriated. Napoleon sent some of this loot back to Paris to appease the Directory, but kept much of it to finance the expedition. Napoleon Caesar of Malta was a significant factor in Russia's eventual decision to disavow their previous position of neutrality and enter the war of the Second Coalition against the French Republic, but we'll discuss that more in detail later on. The expedition departed from Malta on June 19th. Napoleon was in high spirits. His little experiment in Malta was intended to be a test run for what he planned to do in Egypt, and its seeming success portended well. Unbeknownst to him, however, his flotilla was secretly being followed by the man who was to lay his grand oriental ambitions to waste, Sir Horatio Nelson. By all accounts, Nelson was a genius of naval strategy, and possessed an ambition comparable to that of Napoleon himself. Above all, Nelson was deeply religious, and viewed the French Revolution as an upset to the divinely mandated order, and, as such, an affront to God himself. His nearly twenty years of service had seen him scarred and deformed, he had been stricken with all manner of tropical diseases during his time in the Caribbean, he had lost his right arm, and in the course of this series, he will also lose his right eye. Nevertheless, he still had the motivation to carry out his duty, believing himself to be a God's instrument against the revolutionary heathens. Perhaps later down the road I will produce a series of episodes on the life of Horatio Nelson, because I believe his story is definitely one that merits telling. Anyway, that's about where I'll leave things for now. With Napoleon and company en route to Egypt to win fame and glory, and with the British in hot pursuit. If you like this episode, please feel free to give the show a favorable rating on iTunes. That way, more people can find the show for themselves. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, you can always email the show at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the description of this episode. 
Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.